you'd be intrigued to know whether I preferred the baby or the dog. And I thought that was, as I was walking the dog and listening to the podcast, I, I came to that bit and I thought, well, that's, that's a bit unfair, because obviously it's a dog. <laughs> and, and then you, you spent three paces thinking about it and Didn't decided to, not even three paces the dog is much more fun to interact with at this stage but obviously I love my son dearly do we uh, expect there to be some sort of graph at which point your son overtakes the dog in his ability to communicate with you in a way of your liking I think just draws level we should focus on <laughs> if, we can, yeah, if we can attain that at the age of 26 let's he's going to eventually be just as responsive as the dog let's get to that point where I like the child as much as the dog and then we'll be <laughs> and then we'll talk then, then we'll be alright if, if, if Edward can get to that stage then, then he's, he's doing well are you furious because you chucked the ball for Edward and he didn't go and fetch it <laughs> Hector just it, I've given up on that on that game Hector just he does it twice and gets really bored do you get the impression Steve that Rory is going to be quite a demanding father in that it might not manifest itself in uh, you have to go to Cambridge you have to you, you just have to be able to do what Hector can do and then if you don't I'll be really furious I like think... sleep for 16 hours a day and eat small biscuits just want to eat just eat out of a bowl on the floor eat out of a bowl and That's give fine. me your paw when I ask yeah the paw thing is crucial <laughs> Edward paw yeah that's fine no I no it's uh, will he be like Mowgli from the jungle book sort of raised raised by wolves kind of attitude I think it's really good to have for children to have animals I think that's really good it teaches them teaches them respect and sharing uh, so the, Edward will grow up knowing that in, he has in Hector a fearsome protector but also somebody who his dad is happy to spend time with if he's been annoying uh, have you reached that, that stage yet because we're a couple of weeks in now obviously lots of visitors lots of phone calls uh, lots of things coming through the post lots of and lots of offers of assistance and hand-me-downs hollow offers of assistance none have come to you've not got to that stage where you're having to try and be gracious for, for things that you've already been offered multiple times over no. You've got to make it sound like it's the first time. And, and otherwise, all listeners can and contribute. And we are as guilty of this as any, because we are in your house right now, cooing over your baby, making lots of uh, offers of hand-me-downs. What, and what you forget like. is that both Kate and I are from Leeds, <laughs> and therefore, if it's free, we will take it. And if we already have one, we'll sell it. <laughs> You notice that we are speaking in hushed tones because Edward is attempting to sleep just in the corner of the room um, and uh, so in doing so we are showing the utmost respect to the family situation here because um, people who have started listening to this wonder why we're like doing some sort of campfire story. Yeah, no, it is. It's good, but it's a nice tone. I think maybe we should adopt it more. We should do more more podcasts in the presence of sleeping children. But have you, uh, have you also noticed that my two children, who are also present, have been running riot ever since the moment they came through the door and are now sat attentively on the sofa whilst we have a... Yeah, but recorded conversation. Why can't they behave like this I all think the time? Six, we should record them constantly. <laughs> the, the, I think it's even at six and three, they they respect good quality professional broadcasting. I think that's, that's basically what they more than they expect the health or indeed safety levels of a very very small human uh, around which they were bounding quite gaily. They were, earlier. but there's also been an, an interesting kind of to bring it back to Hector. Uh, there's also. <laughs> yes, we needed to do that, didn't we? There's also been an, an interesting dynamic between the two boys who I think it's fair to say are interested in the dark, but also simultaneously nakedly terrified of it. <laughs> it's absolutely astonishing. They've been, we said earlier, we're going to go round to visit Rory and Kate and, and meet the baby. The fresh baby. The, the fresh, fresh baby. baby. And all they were interested in was a dog. They've been talking a good game about the yeah. dog ever since we announced that we were coming round to visit you. 
and they won't go near him. Yeah. They won't go near him. And they've not even frightened of him attacking them, which is an option. Because Spaniel's famously vicious drinkers. <laughs> Clearly. He lo- he looks, Just look at him. He, he looks scary right now, doesn't he? He's asleep on Hugh's feet. He's not frightened at all. They're frightened of him licking them. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, hygienically is, is fair enough, because he does obviously lick a variety of disgusting things all day. <laughs> but it's a surprising thing to be frightened of. And it is perhaps fitting that um, we should uh, end our little preamble here um, in a nicely cyclical way by talking about the dog and uh, not the baby. You will note that we are in hushed tones and at Rory's house for this section of the podcast uh, simply because Rory cannot be with us for the main bulk of the podcast because you may well have noticed it may have been referenced he's got a dog to look after Um, so uh, with that Rory we wish you well in fatherhood he will return on the next set piece menu but for now Steve and I will take over Welcome to Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. And welcome to part two of our not at all deserved, but logistically necessary best bits of the not even a year yet. Come on, you guys. Are you serious? Hosted by me, Hugh Ferris and Stephen Wyeth. We are currently at the Topsy Turvy Townhouse or Chamois for the educated. And we have BLTs or at least the remnants of on our plates. This is a problem for Steve as he doesn't really like the L or the T and actually didn't have any T. But, but I, I had plenty of L to make up for it. You, d- you did at least, well B was the main part. You still um, felt at least grateful on account of the fact that I went out and got everything fresh this morning. So I've guilted you into enjoying it. You did not have to guilt me into enjoying a sandwich with bacon in it. Is that all? <laughs> that <laughs> the is... secret to, to Stephen's heart, bacon and bread. Really, he's one step away from being a happy prisoner. You'll already know that Rory Smith is now a daddy to a small male child and struggling over whether to favour his son over his dog. We miss him terribly and Andy Hinchcliffe is a new granddad and even though he is one further generation removed is no less doting and no less hands-on so therefore we miss them both. Does Chinch have the same problem with his granddaughter and the dogs over where his loyalty lies? (laughs) He has long decided that the dogs are so low on the pecking order I think there are inanimate objects that he prefers to his dogs. Uh, They will both return with many stories of their heroic parenting and grandparenting. In the meantime, we are taking some of the newer listeners to the Set Piece Many Football Podcast on a little journey through the formative weeks of our existence to serve as a reminder and hopefully a little teaser to send you to new and undiscovered pastures if you haven't quite yet managed to saturate your lives with our waffle. And it's also giving us an opportunity to plunge into Twitter and to the emails. I love that. that? Can you plunge let's into plunge Twitter? into Twitter. It is, it, is, it is blue, so let's plunge. I think that works. And the very generous and plentiful communication that you send our way in reaction to a variety of different discussions and conversations we've had over recent weeks. We don't always get the the opportunity on a week-by-week basis to reflect upon them because many of you go back and listen to old episodes and bring up things that we were talking about weeks ago and it doesn't necessarily segue beautifully with what we're talking about at that immediate point in time. But the current absence of Chinch and Rory for parenting reasons gives us the opportunity to do so. And uh, I'll give you a little example, uh, an excellent point from Jez Bays, who's a regular tweeter, who went back to a podcast where we were talking about segregation in football stadiums and the atmosphere being a factor in keeping home and away fans uh, separated. And he said, another home fan noise reducing factor that you didn't consider is that the 1970 football fan would have been chanting City, 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 or whichever team you support. The 2017 football fan who now watches 40, 50, 60 matches on TV a season 
simply turns to his friend and says, I think the left-back needs to tuck in a bit more. We have erudite listeners, if nothing else. 42, by the way. Episode number 42, 42 was, was, it was met by 42 listeners. Uh, segregation, if you'd like to go back just a few weeks and uh, check out number uh, 42. The last two pieces of uh, correspondence that came my way uh, was criticism for being rude about rugby league, for which we apologise, and Rory isn't here to defend it, uh, so we'd better not do it again. And secondly, I was also criticised for saying that Huddersfield beating Manchester United was one of the best results in Huddersfield's history, bearing in mind that Huddersfield won the league three times in a row they haven't beaten United for 65 years I thought it was fair I am here so I can defend myself and now, well done thank you on last week's pod we brought you highlights from our post-truth player power and second teams pods that's 6 13 and 24 if you're interested or ticking them off like somebody spotting trains would tick off the numbers in their special book today it's another selection starting with some of the best bits from those episodes that we lean on Chinch's expertise it does happen would you believe he is actually very well educated very tactically astute despite all the abuse uh, we give him and an excellent footballing analyst and we have had plenty of communication recently from people who have enjoyed hearing Chinch's voice on their coverage of England internationals all around the world because he was uh, the co-commentator on uh, on England's recent World Cup qualifiers on what we call the world feed, the, the version of the commentary you get in English-speaking territories all over the globe. And it's always nice to be able to be nice to Chinch when he's not here because it makes up for the fact that, yes, when he is here, it's very much the opposite. And we have plumbed the depths of that particular knowledge that he has in a number of episodes. We'll start with, quite fittingly, on Set Piece Menu, Set Pieces. Here, Andrew George reveals his technique for the perfect free kick. There's a relaxation technique that you use before you strike a ball. And then all the things that I've been taught about in terms of how you strike the ball, the contact with the ball being the most important thing. So it's working. Everything depends on how you strike the ball. The wall's immaterial. The weather's immaterial. The goalkeeper's immaterial. It's all about the practice you put in and actually how you strike that ball. Because that's ultimately is, is what ends up with the ball in the net. What's the relaxation technique? Um, it's just a, it's a, it's a mindfulness. I don't want to go into it too much because you'll all fall asleep. Did Ireland Drury help you with it? <clears throat> I, I did meet Ireland Drury once. You've got very hot hands. But then again, the radiator was on, so she might have. <laughs> yeah, I met her once. Yes, she was an interesting. Did, yeah, she, did she help you with that sort of thing? Or is that just what Willie Dunnock here No, she me? helped me with a lot of other stuff. You know, the other issues that I have, but not free kick taking. You know, all the other issues I have. Was she, was yeah. she previous lives, Annie Drury? No, that was the, that was that was the insult that cost yeah, Hoddle his job. job. Anyway, can we get back to the, the, the point of the question? It was, so w- do we all believe that corners are a bit rubbish now? No, free kicks I've got a, a different question. Oh, better, a better question. We'll do well, that question later. The one that he's given us? No. So, where are you trying to hit the ball? What? Where is the spot? Where's the sweet spot on the ball to take a free kick? Where is the actual sweet spot what on the ball? What bit of the ball were you aiming for? Low on the ball? Were you aiming for high on the well, ball? If you aim low on the ball, it goes too high. If you aim too high on the ball, it goes too low. So you have to aim for the, the midriff. Yeah. Does the ball the have a spot. midriff? Yeah, the sweet spot. Yeah, but it's all about that contact that you make. So that's like golfers do. If you see golfers on the driving range, a lot of the time they just practice the swing. They're not bothered about where the ball ends up. They'll know where it ends up because of how they make contact with it on the putting green. It's the same thing. So the concept comes from that. And that's the way. And I obviously heard stories about how Zola used to practice at Chelsea. I think Graham Lasso, friend of mine, Graham Lasso. Friend of mine England as well. Colleague. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Probably do, my, do you call him GLS as well? Probably though? my <laughs> probably my favourite ex-England left back. Phil Neville? No. No? So, GLS. Anyway, GLS. Yes, he would tell me about how much I worked quite a bit with Tony Dorigo. He'd, yeah. he'd, be, he'd be your most favourite. Uh, and I went to school with his son, Dorigo. Oh, I've got so go. many left back connections, it's ridiculous. Anyway, We're talking about Dorigo, not Doritos. Dorito, yeah. Dorigo, yes. Didn't go to the school with the son of the guy who made, makes Doritos. <laughs> 
<laughs> so anyway, where you strike the yes, yeah, so you talk about where you strike the ball. Yeah. Yes, of course, yeah. If you're trying to get it up and down, then clearly if you strike it too high or too low, it's not going to do what you want it to do. But it is all about head. It is all those classic things. Like the rugby, we used to watch the rugby um, kickers at uh, Sale. We used to live around the corner from Sale. I was sent to watch the guy practice the rugby. I know, the, again, the ball's static. Mm. What, what you're aiming for is, is a set target. In football, it's the same. But everyone says, oh, you've got a wall, you're a goalkeeper. No, you haven't. You've got a top corner. That's not going to move. So that what I was practicing was getting the ball from where it starts to where I want it to end up. And what so about the rugby kickers, golfers? The, the sweet spot of your foot. What? Which part of your Because players now are striking it with all different parts of their foot. Don't get what, that. What part of your foot well, the, would you the, kick it with? It's the instep. It's the, it's the three quarters of the way up your instep. If you look at the best, who's the best free kick taker we've all seen in the last 20 years? And the instep. Forget me, guys. Forget me. <laughs> David Beckham is David the best striker Beckham, yeah, yeah. Of, of a ball I've ever seen. And if you look at his method of striking the ball, that's absolutely what he used to do and I, I would say the best free kick takers from a certain range 25 yards always do that style of free kick they don't go for this Ronaldo style or well, just blast it and hope so I would Steve being a connoisseur of the European game yeah. would no doubt join me in suggesting that Beckham is probably the best in-step free kick taker yeah. of the last 20 years but the best free kick taker mm-hmm. of the last 20 years is Janino Panambucano the Leon Janino who invented the Ronaldo, te- the knuckleball technique of, of free kicks, mm. of making the ball kind of appear to judder in the air, like the old Mets advert, if you remember. So they're saying that would be money. more effective, or was he so good at it that it was very effective? But if, you got, if you took a bog standard footballer like yourself or Steve or Hugh and stood in front of a ball and said, what, what, which I way would you strike it? Yes, I don't think my the, standard is bog. Would you go straight down the Ronaldo or would you open your body out and do what? Whenever I took free kicks as yeah. a younger man, I tried to curl them. Whip them. Yeah. 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 Would you do the same thing? Absolutely. Would you do the same? Oh, yeah, pointless asking you, it, you're bloody hopeless. <laughs> it wouldn't reach the goal. <laughs> you do have spindly legs, don't you? But it is interesting, there has, as Hugh says, there has definitely been a change in the popularity of that technique, that knuckleball technique. But is it because of Ronaldo? That Janino invented and Ronaldo has made popular is definitely so who's much this more guy? Tell me this guy, I've never heard Giannino of him. Panambucano, he played for Leon. Jeez. He was a, a sort of, I don't know, tousle-haired Brazilian, I guess, is okay. the best way to describe it. Where did he play? He was an attacking midfielder. In what... what Oh, in uh, when did he play? Late nineties, two thousands. Have you heard of him, Steve? Yes, yeah, I know. I, yes, I, I know. I don't quite. Yeah, I know who he is, but I don't quite buy into the fact that he was more prolific as a free kick taker. Scored Beckham. Scored more free kicks than anybody else. But record. He's a record but holder. Was that, I think. was that volume of? Was that based on volume of free kicks? Well, the, was it, I mean, the, we'd be talking. It had a better percentage. Well, that, that's the difficulty. So Ronaldo, who's accepted as being very good at free kicks, if you actually look at Ronaldo's percentage of goals he scores from the number of free kicks he takes, it's not that good. It's but, like Roberto Carlos, famous yeah, for scoring one, one free kick yeah. and then got about one percent of the yeah. subsequent free kicks. I suppose it is going back to what gives you the best chance of scoring. And if you have a free kick taker who's got a specific way of taking them and it's effective, yeah. then clearly he's going to do that. But if if you t- the, the certain styles of t- if there is this this straight on approach or there's they open the body out, whip the ball. I would always consider the Beckham style of taking a free kick as most likely to succeed, whoever was taking it, because you're more in control, you've less, you're less reliant on the wall breaking up or the goalkeeper moving. But you said something a moment ago, which is like, Willie Donachy told you to not pay any attention to the weather, to the wall, to where the goalkeeper was, because yep. the way that you struck it yep. should be better than all of those Just things. Just explain who Willie Donachy is. By a way, former, a former coach yeah. of yours at Manchester yeah, City. Yeah. Everton and Manchester City. Uh, Everton, yeah. Joe Royal, Willie Donachy came in and some of the stuff... Sorry, just Everton, ch- yeah. Yeah, some of the... the it came to Sheffield, actually Sheffield Wednesday as well. He came there for a while. But again, a lot of the techniques in terms of body shape and how you defend and how you move and how your footwork, but taking set pieces was a big... Because obviously they came in at a time we needed to win games and they probably saw or what I was maybe capable of doing and we worked incredibly hard and then he taught me this this process of actually trying to play the percentages make it as hard as possible for the opposition from say corners but from free kicks when I'm in total control of what happens 
No one else is in control of it. The goalkeeper's not, he's reacting to what I do. The wall is reacting to what I do. It, the, the ball, how long, how long would it take from 25 yards, from, from foot to the back of the net, you're looking at a second and a half maybe? The weather can't really come into play because the ball is moving that quickly. It's there before the wind can get hold of it or re- whatever it might be. So that's what I was taught. And actually, it's just it's a completely different way of, of thinking about taking a set piece because normally you look at where the wall is or you look at where the goalkeeper is and then make your mind up. No, my mind was made up even before the free kick was given because as soon as that ball is placed down, my, my concentration is on myself relaxing, listening to my breathing and making sure I strike that ball. Correctly. Where are you aiming for then? Top the, sa- the same time every time? If you're no, taking it from got, the left hand to the opposite? Corners, and I, I just one. make a split. I say, right, that's the way I'm going to put it. And the wall, it's, it doesn't matter because the trajectory I play the ball on, the wall won't be able to affect it. The goalkeeper won't be able to affect it. Doesn't, how, don't you obviously can't, you, if you're a yard out, you're over the bar or you're wide of the pole. But what you're looking to do is be so precise that the goalkeeper, doesn't matter how athletic he is or, or how he reads what you're trying to do, there's no way he's going to save it. So, so this, is, this is interesting to me because I would, from commentating on football or from watching football as a fan, when you see the player place the ball, you are su- assuming he's taking all of those criteria mm-hmm. into his thought process. No. His aiming has got to factor in whether the wall is slightly left or right of where he would prefer it to be. So, so you're telling me that a good free kick taker, mm-hmm. will, it, once they've made, in the same way as a, a, a golfer with a drive or a, a putt, if they hit the, that ball as true yeah. as they know they are capable of, that ball is going to go into the back of the net yeah, and, yeah. There's, and there's nothing the goalkeeper or the wall well, can do. The goal, of course, you have, if the wall were to jump for some reason, jump 12 feet off the ground and actually someone gets a head on it. Again, there's nothing, but the chances of that happening or the chance right. of a goalkeeper, if, if he leaves you a section of the goal to shoot for, if I put it in the top corner, whether he's in the right side of the goal or not, it's still going to take something incredible. So mm. I do as much as I can do. If he beats me in the fact that he's actually so athletic and, and, and reads it to a degree and actually gets there and make a save, it happens, of course it happens, but then yeah. the goalkeeper has actually outdone you, but you've done, you've not made life any easy for him, but the chances of that happening regularly, it just didn't happen. With the, that, that's why I was taught the method that I was taught. So do you think other professionals would benefit from that advice? Because that seems to me that if the only variable mm. is you, yeah. the free kick taker, yeah. then blimey, you'd spend... 90% of your time well, practicing like, that, Like you? at Everton, when a free kick was given in wide areas or from 25 yards out, nobody else even came over and said, I'll have this one because I was taking them because that's the work that we've done. That's the, what's the point in practicing 60, 70 free kicks twice, a, you know, three or four yeah. times a week. If Anders Limpar wants to come over and say, t- I'll take this one. No, you're not. That never happened. So I can just put the ball down and it's all about me because that's the practice I put in during the course of the week. So, so the no mid- one else interfered with the fact, whoever, we didn't decide on who was going to take it. I was going to take it. And everyone knew that, and I knew that. So that's the, that's the practice I put in. So on a match day, it wouldn't change. That wouldn't change at all. So you're, in your role as a co-commentator for Sky now, you're sat, sat up there in a the gantry, and the minute you see a discussion amongst players as to who's going to take it, well... It's just distracting. Yeah. And they're, if they're looking at the wall, I'm thinking, that, how, that hasn't got any relevance, because if you strike the ball well enough, and this is what you've practiced, but maybe is the practice being done? Are the coaches encouraging the players to, to be presuming doing what I used to do I just don't see it and with the way that corners are taken now they're just floated in it seems to be a way of restarting the game rather than actually trying to put the opposition under pressure which was the whole point of, of what we did we'll get into corners in just a moment but just to finish off on, on free kicks everything that you have mentioned it suggests that walls are unnecessary mm-hmm. there's so much superficiality going on around yeah. free kicks they're unnecessary so what, why is that happening well, is that because they're trying to overcomplicate it because they want to look cool and new or are, are they simply just unaware of well, that's, their lack of ben- the lack of benefit. That's what would make things interesting. I, I think setting a wall up, uh, there must be a lot of walls that do do their job. And the, but again, it's down to if the ball's not stuck correctly, 
the wall does its job. If I strike the ball correctly, the wall can't do anything about it. I can manipulate around the wall, over the top of the wall. It can't do anything about it. So if they weren't to set a wall up, would put more doubt into my mind, thinking, wait a minute, this is what teams have always done. If they were just to scatter in the penalty area and give me a target from 25 yards out with maybe two players standing on the posts, okay, your players can go st stand on the goal line as well. But that would make it harder for me. Setting a wall up actually, I think, gives me a huge advantage over the goalkeeper because I've got a bigger target to aim for and those players are all in one bunch and they're not going to affect what I do anyway. But if you scatter those players about, I, I, it would definitely put doubt in my mind. Free kicks without walls, ladies and gentlemen. Come on, football, try it. Rory, Rory by the way, is very anti-walls. Uh, and working for the New York Times, I guess he has to be. Uh, so to hear more of that one, go to episode eight. Yeah, I still can't remember whether I learnt Rory's surname first or the fact that he disliked walls <laughs> at free kicks. Hello, I'm Rory. I hate walls. Smith, by the way, is generally how he tends to introduce <laughs> himself to people. Uh, if you're doing your catching up chronologically, uh, by the way, and you're just through episode eight after that excellent tease clip. It won't be long before we get to number 12 and another chance for Chinch to spread his intellectual wings. This time, the subject was the lost art of defending. It was prompted by a weekend where there were a lot of goals in the Premier League, but too many of them were down to some pretty average defending. So with all the attacking flair on display these days, not just in England, but everywhere, has good defending become a thing of the past? We have to look at the role of defenders now. I keep going back to my time and saying, well, back 20 years ago, we played 4-4-2 against 4-4-2. So as a fullback, I played against a winger. Now fullbacks don't play against wingers anymore because teams play 4-2-3-1. Centre-halves don't play against two centre-forwards anymore. They play against a, a roving centre-forward or a, not a big physical centre-forward. So what the, the job of a centre-half and a fullback has completely changed over the last year. And I think fullbacks are obviously then tempted to be wide players, forward players more than defenders. Centre-halves have got more time on the ball are expected to play out from the back like John Stones and stuff so the actual art the actual job of, of defending against somebody has changed because they're not defending against anybody because the shape of the game has changed I think the other relevant factor that you have to forgive is and there's, there's loads more to it mm. but the rule changes the rule changes have basically every, with every little change that's made it makes defending a harder thing to do it makes it basically impossible like the softening of the offside rule for example well uh, offside's a whole other thing <laughs> well, well, maybe a whole other podcast it could be the, no, <laughs> the, main, the main one is if you look at tackles mm -hmm. so you now get sent off as far as I can tell potentially certainly in the Premier League for a ta one-footed tackle what I think of as a one-footed tackle if you leave the ground and your studs are showing you yeah. can still be sent off it's become much much harder for defenders to do their job and I think that that is it's not the only thing mm. but that's a massively relevant factor that we've always felt that the Hugh says you know there's loads of goals that's a good thing there was an Italian manager who's not a Rido Sacchi I always thought it was a Rido Sacchi it's not it's someone older than that whose name I've now forgotten it's annoying me who said that the perfect game ends nil-nil and I think there's an element of truth in that. If everyone does their job perfectly, the game ends nil-nil. Mm. So a goalless game isn't always a bad game. I really hate this thing where yeah. we're told, oh, it's, you won't have enjoyed this very much on, on BT. Sky, don't do it. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> the last game of Match of the Day. What, Sky don't show goalless games? No, but there's this thing like... If you <laughs> we just don't have game, goalless games. They're always well, tremendous. Game, commentators always say, not you, Steve, obviously not you, no. always say it's been a bit of a disappointing game. You sort of think, well, don't tell me 
that I don't enjoy goalless football. I might like rain. Do you know what I mean? Some people like it when it's raining. We, no, we've we're seen, all, we're we, all different. We've seen some bad games with lots of goals yeah. in over the last couple. I'd of rather months. rather watch a. a, a re- this sounds really sort of deliberately hipsterish, but I'd rather watch like a, a really high quality nil nil than a chaos. I once saw Spurs beat Reading seven four. It was awful. It was no, it was Reading and Portsmouth. Yeah, yeah. No, that was the week before. Oh right, okay. So the, I always remember the Reading Portsmouth game that was that was seven four was. Awful! It was a terrible game, and and literally, I think it was only third or fourth for match of the day. No, it was, was it, well, I think it was it was first, first but, but it was almost like reluctantly. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or like Pep said about Swansea Palace, the five four, and he, you could tell he did it with a slight sneer on his face. But he basically said five four, eight goals from set pieces. What do you want? Like that's not that's goals don't equal entertainment. Is yeah. all I'm saying. But uh, I think what we have lost is. Because, because of that emphasis towards attacking, people think we want to see more goals. We've lost the idea that actually defending, if defending done well, is great to but watch. Also, the way that attackers play act as well and, and know that defenders can't make challenges. Yeah. You see, I think Jamie Vardy's a, <clears throat> a classic example of the way that he'll run at a defender, move the ball out of the way and then run into the defender and say, I've been fouled. When he hasn't been fouled, but he's making it look like he's been fouled. So as a defender, you're saying, well, you're not being honest with me. I'm trying to win the ball off you. If you're better than me and you get past me, you've beaten me. That's how it is. But So just play the game honestly. Don't try and cheat your way to things and make it look like defenders can't defend when they can, but you're not allowing them to actually try and get the better of you. I think a lot of centre-forwards play that game now. I take the point that the rule changes and the fact that you know the game is not as physical as it was counts against defenders more so than it does attackers but but have defenders failed to evolve in that regard because I'm sure when you were playing Andy you know you had that opportunity to put a reducer in on a winger and that yeah. perhaps would have stifled his enthusiasm to run at you again yeah. now of course you know the modern day fullback can't do that no. but does that not mean that defenders need to defend differently absolutely well, what they do I talk about it all the time the appreciation of the game for defenders has to change because if you're not up against somebody which normally keeps you sharp if you're a fullback up against a winger I'm on my toes because you might be getting the ball and taking me on if that's not happening I want no one to mark what else can I be dealing with so you have to appreciate movement off the ball and that's what the 4-2-3-1 system is you get attacking midfielders making good movement off the ball and you see it all the time with, with fullbacks and centre-halves watching the ball and suddenly somebody will be in behind them and they'll think oh my god how's he got in there Aguero's a master at getting away from defenders and getting in behind them but it's because the defenders aren't appreciating the game that's around them if they've got no one to mark the danger is where that ball is going to end up so then you have to understand where the space is so why is it a difficulty for defenders to adapt to a new way of playing when in fact over the last what seven or eight years everybody else has managed to adapt and play this incredible attacking football and find different spaces and find different ways of playing and maybe playing in new positions that, yeah. that have been created. Why well, is this it is the defenders way, can't do this? If this same? is the way you're going to play and the opposition are going to play, surely your role, as a, if, you, if you call it a back four, isn't really that anymore, is it? But surely the defenders have to be trained to appreciate what is going. So you work on the training field about saying, well, if the ball's over there and there's no pressure on the ball and the centre forward you're supposedly marking makes a move over here, where is the da- Do you not work on saying, well, actually, the danger isn't the ball. The danger is where the ball ends up. So if you're watching the ball, you're in big trouble. So surely you train to actually defend differently rather than man against man. You actually then have to appreciate the game so you're, you're tra- but then you see it, I see it in the Premier League see it in the Championship a lot because again maybe once you step out of the Premier League you think well mentally the players might not be as sharp you see it in the Premier League week after week after week, even experienced defenders when they get lazy or when they just think well there's no real problem here they, they watch the ball and as soon as they do that top class centre forwards or wide players cause you a problem well, that's interesting because I, I wonder whether coaching of defending hasn't Become at times it doesn't look like it's exactly it looks like they, they haven't been helped yeah exactly there's coaching of attacking and then mm. maybe maybe that 
they're still coaching to an extent as though we everything is man against man. It's yeah. four four two. It's everyone's everyone's matched up. Mm. But the other thing is that, and this fascinates me, as a player, if you're if you've already do, always done one thing from when you were a kid yeah. that you were taught to do one thing as a kid, mm-hmm. how much work on the training ground do you have to do realistically? to overcome what has become a sort of inbuilt instinct. Well, the, the, surely the coaches would see, you, you make one mistake like that. If you're a fullback and the, the guy, and you're watching the ball and the winger or the wide player up against, makes a run on your inside shoulder, which tends to happen, gets in between you and a centre-half, gets in on goal and scores. Once that happens once, surely as your coach, you'd say, right, once we watch that back, I've got to take my fullbacks and teach them that if somebody makes them, you've got to be aware that they might be making a move in field. Don't watch the ball. So you then coach them. That's the mm. coach's job. But then say, you've made a mistake. This is why you got it wrong. This is how to put it right. But you've then got to appreciate you can't just say, well, I'll do it nine times out of ten and it'll work. You've got to do it every single time. Mm. So the way that you defend has to change completely. It's defending space and movement when in the past it used to be defending physically against somebody. That's what I was taught when I was 17, 18. Stop crosses coming in, get close to the winger, don't let him get past you and get crosses in. That was my job. But then you take the winger away. I'd have been in a bit of, well, what, what would I do now? I'm pointless. Well, no, you have to be aimlessly. Well, you would be, because you think, well, isn't that always, if that's not your job now, what can you help with? You get yeah. close to centre An existential crisis. Then, but then you get taught how to, how to defend differently. Gary Neville wrote, a couple of years ago, wrote a piece in, in, I think it was in The Telegraph, about the lost art of defending. And he said that when he first started playing, and as a, you know, as a widely respected Manchester-born former England fullback, I think we, you know, we're useful to have his input. Yes, it would, <laughs> we haven't it? got yeah. that sort of calibre around us. <laughs> um, is it when he first started playing, sixty or seventy percent of their day to day training was based on defensive techniques. Mm. Whereas now in his role as a coach, he says the split is 80-20 in favour of technical attacking play. Yes. So it's gone completely full circle. So yeah. that's got to be, uh, that's got to have an impact as well, hasn't it? That during the course of any any one week, mm. teams are working more on scoring goals rather than preventing them being scored. But what's probably even more important, I'd, I'd love to know what, what the, the split is in the academies. Because you look at a lot of academy players, mm-hmm. they're kind of identical footballers. It's keeping possession, they're yes, technically yes. neat, it's, it's all lovely to watch, it's all very pretty. I'd love to know how much academy teams are doing on defensive shape week in, week out, because I, I don't think it's a vast Because amount. If, if you're playing 4-2-3-1 and you've got the ball and you're dominating possession as a full-back, you can be on the halfway line looking to move forward because your wide players come infield, you're then encouraged to provide the width. So the coaches may be looking at the full-backs as being key players in an attacking sense. I just find it strange when they lose the ball and they're running backwards towards their own goal, there doesn't seem any desire to get back and then uh, there's no desire to actually get hit by the ball and get hurt. Mm. They'd hang a leg out maybe and say, if the ball hits me, but they don't seem to be that, I absolutely, if that happened and the cross came in the box, centre-halves, the goalkeeper, your coach will be saying, you've got to stop that happening. Now it's kind of, well, if it bypasses me, that's your job, centre-halves, to deal with that. It's not my job to stop the cross, isn't it? I think it's always nice to end on a rhetorical question. Ten minutes leading up to that, and we don't even give you the answer. Mind you, every single set-piece menu, we tend to pose a question that we fail to answer. Before our final dip into the timeless annals of the pod, well, we'll go back to March, let's hear some of your responses uh, to some of the more recent episodes. And once again, Mr. Wyeth, step into the void as you are the conduit between us around this dining table and those many thousands of people out there who, who like to be set-piece menu listeners. SPMers. 
Sp- spammers. Yes, it is quite tragic, by the way, that the set piece menu Twitter feed is considerably busier and takes up a lot more of my time than my own personal <laughs> Twitter feed does. Uh, seeing, seeing as uh, we've gone back uh, to some of our earlier episodes so far in this catch-up, let's uh, perhaps hear from Ryan Hand, who has recently listened to episode 19, where we broke with our tradition of grumbling about stuff to talk about whether there's any fun in football. And uh, we clearly paid reference to comparing uh, European attitudes towards watching sport uh, to American attitudes to watching sport. And Ryan Hand said, in American sport, those who shout, scream and swear are actually isolated and called out by other fans. I've witnessed this in Major League Baseball, in basketball, in college sport and in NFL games. Uh, We heard uh, also from a couple of people who had uh, picked up on Rory Smith's recent uh, assessment that football is a bit of an outlier in terms of home advantage when we were talking about segregation. And one or two people asked, is that really true? Is football an outlier in terms of sports around the world where where home advantage is is so substantial episode number 44 thank you very again much. if you're at ticking your off your list at your fingertips uh, simon easy t on twitter said uh, i'm getting in touch for, uh, regarding rory's theory that home advantage is a specific concept of football and there was a retweet from jill brandt is it jill brandt or gil gil brandt who is an nfl analyst who had uh, recently done some calculations and said after 78 games of this nfl season there have been 39 home wins and 39 away wins there you go some rare actual evidence to support one of our crackpot theories on set piece menu i don't like evidence i fear evidence and we also heard somewhat predictably from uh, arsenal fans who uh, picked up on the fact that we uh, gave arsenal a bit of a hard time for flying to away games at norwich norwich not currently in the premier league but but when they are Arsenal and many other London teams, as, Tils, as Tim Stillman pointed out, saying sensitive Arsenal fan here, but Chelsea have also flown to Norwich more than once. We're still both wrong, obviously. And just a reminder for those of you who don't know the geography of this particular part of the British Isles, Arsenal to Norwich away is probably about the grand total of 111 miles. But probably. That, that sounds like evidence again. He needs to stop doing that. Evidence is not important. Opinion, wild and unfathomable opinion is where we like to start and end our conversations. Are we getting a chinch soccer story? Uh, we will get a chinch soccer story. That sounds like a tease, Well, there Steve. you go. There you go. Uh, obviously, one of the great subjects of chinch soccer stories is, is Neville Southall, his former Everton teammate, goalkeeper oh. of some reputation. And guess what's coming up? Splendid. There you go. It is a perfect segue on the way. Uh, but recently, Neville has been particularly active on Twitter. And for those of you who haven't seen uh, his comments, particularly his ones of a political slant, they are well worth uh, searching out. Uh, but Keith McMahon had commented on a recent Chinch Neville Southall soccer story by saying, according to Andy Hinchcliffe on At Set Piece Menu, Neville Southall hated being called the bin man. That's a bit odd because it's the title of his autobiography. At Set Piece Menu is where you can find us on Twitter. Keep Steve busy. And our email address is uh, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. The final discussion that we will bring you before we do have a mention or two of Neville Southall on this long-awaited and much clamoured for highlight show is from episode 15. It's about the script. We asked, if there is one... And who's writing it? We very quickly ascertained that much of football's ability to seemingly follow a predetermined script was about something called confirmation bias. But then there appeared to be more to it than that. 
on the occasions when a, a player scores against his former club or you know on his debut mm. or when he's been in the news for a week it stands out in the memory mm. and you think oh yeah of course that happened you know Rooney scored the last minute winner in the Manchester derby with overhead kick against Man, against Man City the season after he tried to join them or there'd been all that connect all those all that talk that sort of thing Jamie Vardy scores two for Leicester the the day after mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. game after Ranieri's been sacked when he's allegedly been the one who's been the problem that that happens rarely it does happen no question but the reason it seems like a pattern is because all of the times it doesn't happen don't stand out in the memory we, we, we're not taking a fair sample we're taking the most memorable events and turning them into a pattern that's confirmation bias are you trying to say that we don't have a situation where the morning after Wayne Rooney doesn't score in a Manchester derby we uh, we don't have Andy Hinchcliffe on the Sky Sports News <laughs> HQ sofa <laughs> analysing uh, the, the Wayne Rooney contribution to a game he didn't score in all, all, the, all the debutants who don't score yeah. on their debuts all the former players who don't, don't score, score against, against their former clubs, clubs yeah. you're, you're remembering the, the exceptions rather than the rule what well, I, would I, I find interesting is the bogey teams or bogey grounds because these yeah. things happen again and again and again like you said they're not just one-offs that we do remember I think you are right on that one but I do remember as a player going to certain grounds Selhurst Park whatever is it, and you know and the players know that this is not a place where things usually go well it doesn't matter whether it goes all the way back to the 50s and that you just think oh this is the way is it's that true be. the players they do absolutely so they do. Yes. The players as well. so I hate it on match of the day when you get the bits of commentary and I know that there are illustrious television commentators who there listen are. to this as well as appear on it yeah not least what, sat Conor, around this very table Conor yeah. McNamara <laughs> yes. the, the, the lilting Irishman of BBC Radio 5 Live and Match of the Day fame. Connor doesn't do this, but some of his colleagues do, where they'll say, West Bromwich Albion, of course, are at Sunderland today. They've only won here four times since 1976. And as if to say that the players are in the dressing room saying, oh, bloody hell. They do. No. In 77, we got beaten 4-1. No, well, not, not in 77, but they'll know it's a place. They won't necessarily... Act, but people, it'll be the talk that this is a place where we normally find it very hard. Or but the club that, that team itself, so mm. that, within the last five years, yes. probably. But not the club. Not like... No, yeah, surely because you're going further back, aren't you? Surely going, you're going way back. So you're not you're not saying going, well, we didn't do well here last season than the season yeah. before. And mm. a couple I can of, believe you know, that. I yeah. can understand that, but I can't understand why. No, you the historical thinking. thing is it, it is. I, I remember it myself. But you're all right, weak-minded yeah. then. I was, yeah. <laughs> so hang you on, hang on, that, hang on, don't you? You're telling what? me that Joel Robles, for example has studied Everton's form at certain grounds since the 1950s and cares about No, it. he won't know the specifics, uh, but he might have a general idea that when we play... It will be the talk because there'll be old people that have been at the club, the kit men or whatever, and it'll be something, and obviously all the stats that are produced as well, because players occasionally do read information about the games that they're playing in. I know it's crazy, but it does... Players do think about those things, and they do feel maybe anything we do today... It's just going to be one of those days because it seems to have been one of those days over the last 50 years. And players are aware of it. So that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what that is. We've had uh, confirmation bias. We've had self-fulfilling prophecies. The other thing to consider is the narrative. And this is where the media comes in and perhaps is a little bit guilty because the media sets up a narrative and they want that narrative to to follow through because it makes for a better story, whether it's over a long period of time and in newspapers day after day, or whether it's during a football match that you may well be commentating on. You set something up and, of course, it makes you look good, but also it makes sense in this beautiful story that's being told Mm -hmm. For that to happen too. So are we, the media, generally speaking, again, another umbrella term, guilty of setting up a narrative that we're so desperate to come home to roost that we actually tend to ignore quite a lot of other we things want, that we are want happening? We want a good story, yes. so we yeah. hope that that story is going to happen. So we set it up so when it does happen, 
everyone's interested in it so that's what i can understand why that we, we do that we all do that it makes sense yeah and it does perpetuate doesn't it a little bit if you, you're commentating on a game you've got to be aware of the stories around the game but you're also aware that your your audience knows that as well so it would be a little bit foolish almost to ignore the fact that if, if there's a player in the build-up to the game who has been the focus of attention and he is having a large contribution on the flow of the match he might have even already scored a goal you can't pretend that that hasn't happened so that you're not you know using that confirmation bias because you're sort of you're, you're part of the storytelling yourself as the, the trap to be careful not to fall into is the one where you're almost trying to force that yourself upon people which you do occasionally well there's a commentator that you and I have spoken about before yeah. that I, I won't mention the name of because it's unfair to do so Conor McNamara uh, definitely Conor <laughs> McNamara and it's lilting Irish tones um, but there is there is a sense that, that that commentator starts with a narrative that might not necessarily be hinged to a story it might be something that they have decided to set up at the beginning of the game and then everything that happens in that game will try and confirm yeah. that and it's quite frustrating to watch because you feel they're yeah. trying a little bit too hard to do so yes, what about the idea that for example the team is vulnerable defensively yeah. and every tiny little mistake that one of their defensive players makes will be used as you know an example further of, evidence yeah, yeah, to, yeah, well, further the evidence. best example of that is Barcelona for 10 years there's been this idea that they are vulnerable defensively so every time they you know there's a corner it's like a corner is basically random like if you look at the the figures on corners corners don't lead to goals it's complete nonsense you should take them short but you whip a corner in I guess like 75% of the time the defensive team will win it and 25% of the time the, yes. an attacker will get like a head to it and most of the time it'll be a rubbish head or it'll go straight up in the air and the keeper will just gather it in unless Chinch is delivering it in which says all of Van these... He, he pointed at you about a minute and a half ago to say <laughs> what? So, but every time Barcelona kind of face a corner and the opposition team wins the header whatever happens the commentator will go well we know that they're vulnerable from corners because they're all short because what does that <laughs> not Spanish? the corners the players because Gerard Pite is one of the best central defenders in the world what what do you mean they're vulnerable you don't know they're vulnerable from corners if you see the, do the statistics suggest they're vulnerable from corners it's nonsense the, the, other th the two things that I think are important one if you have a player who's in the news it's natural to an extent for a commentator not deliberately, but natural for the, for the eye to be drawn to their contributions. So it would be the case that even if the, that player was one central midfielder, even if his influence on the game wasn't quite as much as the other central midfielder, yeah. you might focus on him. And it's the same for journalists writing match reports after the, after the match. And it's much easier for the journalists because we can basically sort of you can, you, can decide, yeah, you can decide on the afterwards, game afterwards. Yeah. We can say, right, well, this, this, and this happened. It's harder to build this that how it fits narrative in. It's throughout. It's harder to do it during the game. But the other thing is that with a lot of these stories, it works both ways. So you've got a player going back to his former club. Now, either he has a great game or enough of a good game that you can spin it as a great game, and he's been inspired by being at his former club, or he's very quiet and all he was cowed on the occasion. The story, but you, you, you are allowed to get a story either way in most of these situations. So everything is, is put into a narrative because that's basically that's how we understand the world it's not even that's how newspapers work or how TV works that's how people understand the world people understand the world through stories so we, we do sort of impose these things retrospectively retroactively <laughs>
A little bit of episode 15 for you about the script. Uh, we end, as we do, on each and every set-piece menu episode with a soccer story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe tells us a tale from his playing days that has had all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed, mainly because if they hadn't, they would be double the length and you'd be listening to an hour-long story about parts of the male body that, frankly, nobody wants to hear. This soccer story is one involving Neville Southall, an unwitting star of set-piece menu already on this catch-up episode from a pre-season trip with Everton. We're in Switzerland and it's it's a pre-season tour, so we, we're telling to go out to one place. We play, we go out to like towns and villages to play kind of small-scale games. We didn't play the big clubs because they probably beat us and start the season terribly. So we play against kind of local teams, so kind of like park pitches or, or small-scale pitches. So when this happened, the town used to put on like a bit of a like a like a fake kind of thing, a bit of a fair. There'd be like a, a beer tent or something. Like that. So they used to make a, an event of it, English team coming over, and uh, they used to put these big marquees up, especially for the occasion. And one of these days, the, the guys have put the marquees virtually up. We're training on the pitch by the side of this marquee. There's a guy on a ladder at the apex at the front of the marquee where the entrance is, and he must be a good 15 feet off the ground on the top of a ladder putting lights up or doing something. Neville Southall has a ball in his hands. And we say to Nev, you couldn't. There's no way you'd knock him off that ladder, would you? There's no way from here. You couldn't You couldn't kick it over your head and hit him and, and knock him off the ladder. And Nev says, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. No, what are the chances? Now, Neville was very good with the ball at his feet, but we thought, no chance. So Neville literally isn't even looking at this guy. Puts his foot through the ball. So we're all standing there on the train pitch, watching the trajectory of this ball. And it drops right plumb on this guy's noggin <laughs> on the top of this ladder. Knocks him the ladder. He goes with the ladder, so he's falling a good 15 feet. Crashes to the ground. All we do as players is run to Neville and high-five him. <laughs> he's nearly killed this poor guy. All he's doing is trying to put bloody lights up, but it was a shot. You couldn't, you couldn't do it if you tried. And Neville literally over his shoulder just lumped this ball, and it was absolutely... It was, but he was okay. Yeah, yeah. Couple of broken legs. He was feeling never played again. <laughs> but he could get up a ladder and do his job, couldn't he? But we, all, we weren't bothered about the fact that he nearly killed yeah, someone. Yeah. It was, let's all high-five and celebrate the fact he'd hit a poor guy on a ladder 15 feet off the ground. That was just your way of making sure Neville got the blame. If we were no, high-fiving him, no one would it. think it was us. I couldn't have done that, could I? Even if I tried, well, I could. I actually could put on a sixpence, couldn't I? You could open a can of beans with that I never understood that term. What's that all about? Who said it about you? Turn Somebody, on a sixpence. There was a, co- a coach at Everton called Dave Fogg, and he was one of the first... I thought, how well, thanks... And I thought, is that a compliment? Is it because you didn't ever cut your toenails, so they're particularly sharp? What does that mean? You can open a can of beans. And I say, great, thanks for that. It means that you can operate a can opener with your foot because it's that dexterous. Is that really what it means? That's how I've always... He never mentioned the can opener or a tin opener. He just mentioned with that left foot... You can open a can of beans. Can of beans. With just that the sheer force. It smashes through the takes away from the from the, the compliment. If you say you don't open a can of beans without their foot and the correct equipment. <laughs> well, <laughs> it make more sense, of it, wouldn't it? Maybe. It confused me greatly. Maybe Dave uh, Fogg's judgment was slightly clouded. <laughs> oh. And Steve gets the punchline this time. A soccer story with a YF payoff. Not often I get the last word, actually. Well, you had enough time to think of something funny and you got there eventually. And by the way, you may well remember on last week's episode we just uh, almost meanderingly which is a meandering word um, mentioned that Andy Hinchcliffe throughout his career never had a chant 
So we, we've had a few suggestions. They haven't necessarily been particularly creative. And I know it's always very difficult to say, come on, everybody, do our work for us. Uh, but if you do have a creative bone in your body that you'd like to twitch, then perhaps a chant that would have graced the terraces during the time of Andy Hinchcliffe, if you were on that side that he was as left back in the 45 minutes that you would have enjoyed supporting him, what would be the chant that you would sing? And, of course, tell us uh, which song or which piece of music you would like it to accompany. An extra bonus point if you are able to conjure up a tune for that chant that was from a song that was popular at the time. You're going to have to delve Well, you're going to have to be deep. 30 years old, that's for deep. a <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That, does Spotify even go back this far? <laughs> Probably not. You certainly need, will need to go at least back to, what, now 29? Now 28? We may have to, but remember, you're older than me, so you'll always go back further. Uh, hopefully, if everything that we've brought to you so far on this episode is new to you, it has prompted you to delve back into the dark history of our podcast and find those hidden gems amongst the years and years, well, 10 months, of the four friends chatting football while enjoying a bit of food. Please do get in touch, being mindful of the fact that, you know, Steve has a life to live and, you know, has to think about the children as well as responding to your tweets at setpiecemenu or setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Yes, I do have two small children to take care of on an occasional basis and, of course, some actual employment to fit into my schedule as well. (laughs) Occasional basis. (laughs) What an excellent description of fatherhood. Uh, Please do subscribe, share, rate and review. Even if you don't get in touch with us via those more traditional means, we do humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, Thank you to Steve and to you for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I am quite looking forward to us all being back together, though. They're going to have that kind of which I'm sure you have gone through many many times that kind of that smug oh and of course I know what I'm doing now Rory after like two weeks really no no you see I've, I've always taken the approach that you get told an awful lot of untruths in preparing you for parenthood a lot of people will have been telling Rory and Kate it's, it's the first six weeks are the hardest. Once you get through that, it is fine. That is absolute nonsense. <laughs> it is just different problems. They are no easier to deal with. They are no less tiring. You are no less exhausted. You might as well get used to it. Rory and Kate, and to a lesser extent, Grandad Andy, you're just going to have to deal with a dramatic change to your life in many ways a change for the better, but you will certainly have a lot less energy. Oh, that sounds like one of those Jerry Springer wrap-ups at the end of his show. I feel like you've, you've taught me something there.